So I'd like to start with a few uh, questions that'll help pique hopefully your interest and also as we work through this text, this beautiful parable, consider how you will respond, how we should respond to these questions. So while I just read Luke chapter 18, Luke chapter 11 is critical because it's the Lord's Prayer. So Jesus already told us what to pray. So gracious, telling us what to pray. And there's a few lines in the Lord's Prayer that this text in particular is going to tease out. So my first question is, what does it mean in the Lord's Prayer when we say, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us? And what does it mean when we say in the Lord's Prayer, don't lead us into temptation? As we'll see today, this parable is a wonderful example that answers those questions. Second, I think one that we all struggle with is this question, what type of a posture in prayer does God accept? In other words, what prayer is God favorably disposed toward? We want God to hear, so what is our heart posture? What type of a prayer is he pleased with and readily responds to? Third, what character in Luke do we most often reflect? And you've seen it here in this parable. Do we reflect the tax collector or do we reflect the Pharisee in our approach to God, in our heart posture? And why does this even matter? And then the final question, which is also in line with the commandments that our beloved pastor Jonathan has been leading us through. Heidelberg question 115 asks this, why does God want the Ten Commandments to be preached so strictly to us? What is the intent? And as I trust you'll see today, as we truly let the law be the law, it should lead us to a certain heart posture. That's a gracious gift from God. The, the text that I read earlier today is Isaiah 66.2. It says, My hands have made all these things, which is heaven and earth. All these things came into being, declares the Lord by himself. But to this one I will look. So who is God looking toward? Isaiah says, it's the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Well, that's Hebrew poetry and Hebrew prophecy. But the nice thing about Jesus is he's going to give us a parable that illustrates who is this humble one. What does it mean to be contrite in spirit? What does it mean to tremble at God's word? Now, before we begin, there's a few things before we jump into the parable itself that I want to briefly explain uh, one is, as I already mentioned, there's going to be a tax collector and a Pharisee that we need to look at. And Luke loves to do this in his gospel. It's called a, in the ancient world, they called it a syncresis. But today we simply call it a comparison, which is where you have two different characters, <clears throat> excuse me, two different characters, each involving themselves with a certain activity, reflective. So in this parable, we see two people doing something similarly, which is praying. Right? In Luke, you'll have other characters doing other things similarly, like giving of possessions or responding to the needy or what have you. And Luke loves this because a comparison lets you draw out what one character is doing may seem good, but there's another character who is really showing you the way that God accepts. So we do well to step back and identify, first of all, who are these two characters 
And then how do they reflect ourselves and our approach to God? And who should we reflect, the Pharisee or the tax collector? Uh, First, we'll start with the Pharisee. A brief word about cultural context. Uh, Most of us, when we hear the word Pharisee, we instantly form a few tag words, catchphrases, and typically it's going to be, I don't know what you're thinking right now, but my guess is when you hear the word Pharisee, you might be thinking hypocrite. Is that fair? Hypocrite. Um, While that may be true in Jesus' assessments of them, as we'll see, in the first century when he's explaining this parable, that's not the common person's assessment of a Pharisee. So Jesus' parables are intended to have shock value, so we have to work through what our presuppositions is and go back to the ancient world and hear how they're hearing this. So a Pharisee was someone who sought strict obedience to God's law. The Torah, right, the first five books of Moses, is the law and the prophets and the writings, but they really were interested in how Israel kept God's law related to food and tithing and issues of washing. And we'll see this very briefly in Luke's gospel. Uh, One of the reasons is because of their history. So we read in a Jewish text called 1 Maccabees, Maccabees 2, that there was a group that formed called the Hasidim or the pious ones. And these people formed a cluster, a group that was resistant to, in that context, what was called Hellenism. Hellenism is the spread of Greek culture and Greek religion and Greek practices. And the Hasidim said, we can't have this. We have to be faithful to God and his ways. And so they sought to hem in the law to explain to people the need for ritual purity in all matters of life, down to intimate detail. Now, the Hasidim later split into several groups, and we see them in the first century. So you've heard of these names. We've already mentioned the Pharisees. We also have the Sadducees. And then you have another group. You may not be familiar with it, but they're called the Essenes. They were a separate community that lived in the wilderness. Many people debate whether or not John the Baptist reflected this movement. They were very aesthetic. Um, They sought ritual purity. Uh, But in any case, we're concerned for the life of the Pharisee today, and what we need to consider is that they enjoyed high respect and rapport among the common people of Jesus' day. They blazed the trail, blazed the way for Israel to say, this is the way of God, walk in it. They were guardrails of Israel's religion. They were the pious safeguards against wickedness. And so we can think about, in our contemporary context, who might be considered to be a Pharisee in our day in light of that. Who today seeks to safeguard God's law? Who seeks to be a guardrail for going outside of it? Right? So various religious leaders are represented in that way, and they're really respected in our communities today, as would the Pharisee be in the first century. So an exemplar, a model of piety and righteousness particularly in matters devoted to food, tithing, and hand-washing. That is our Pharisee. We'll look at him in a few moments in this parable. Now, the tax collector, also called uh, toll collectors, they were principally involved in collecting tariffs uh, on the transportation of various goods in and out of various roads. So they would be situated on an ideal road and collect typically not kinds, but money. The money would be given to Roman governors or religious Jewish leaders in the first century. And the difficulty, of course, for a tax collector is they had certain dues that they were required to collect, but their livelihood depended on them taking from off the top for themselves. 
Of course, there's a great temptation to skim more off the top than what is required, and very quickly they had a significant reputation for being extortionists, for taking more than what was required. To the great ire of the Jewish people who saw them in many respects as pro-Roman, which is against God in Hellenism. So we can see why the Pharisees would be so resistant to the tax collectors. And in the Gospels, their activities explains why typically they have two different groups lumped together. And you're probably familiar with this. If you're going to hear the word tax collector, there's another word associated with tax collector, which is tax collectors and sinners, right? Those who are deviant from God's law. So the tax collectors are lumped in with that group because of their habitual practices of being pro-Roman, right? And also uh, breaking the commandments, uh, significantly the, the Eighth Commandment. So this is what we would consider as the tax collector. And of course, in the eyes of the first century, their practice of taking more than what was required made them to be highly despised in the eyes of their countrymen. I'm not going to even consider what a reflection of this would be today, but you can consider somebody today who would reflect impious practices and break God's law flagrantly, persistently, who that might be. So this is our tax collector. Two different people in their cultural context. But I want to very quickly, briefly, provide an overview of those two characters throughout Luke's gospel to get a sense for what Luke is doing up to this point in Luke chapter 18 to make sense of the responses of these two individuals. So while the cultural context provides some insight, Luke's literary context within his pages will provide a greater insight into how these two characters interact to God's law and the good news of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ. So quickly, and if you have your Bibles, feel free to very quickly scan with me through these texts. I'll provide a very brief overview here. But in Luke chapter 5, verse 30, uh, we encounter these two groups together, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus is seeing Levi at a tax collector's booth. He calls him to follow Christ with the good news of the gospel. Now, one of the favorite words that Luke uses for the Pharisees, the gusmos, is the word for grumble. They're grumbling constantly at what Jesus is doing. Uh, they don't think he, he represents God's law. They don't think he represents purity and faithfulness and a covenant commitment to God's requirements for those people. So Christ goes and dines with Levi, this infamous tax collector. The Pharisees grumble, but the tax collectors have already responded to John the Baptist's baptism, which is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Their hearts are laid bare. They're looking for the Messiah. And so Jesus says in this scene that he is the great physician. He didn't come to call the righteous, but he came to call sinners and the needy. But we realize very quickly that the law is having its effect in the tax collector's life. They have repented, and they see Jesus as the great physician. In Luke chapter 6, next chapter, two episodes of the Pharisees, their insights into Jesus. The first is the disciples are picking grain on the Sabbath. The Pharisees object. That's an infringement on the Sabbath requirement, the fourth commandment, its work. The Pharisees object, so naturally Jesus responds that he is the good news of the gospel, that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, that he rightly interprets how the Sabbath should be utilized. He, of course, is our perfect prophet, priest, and king. And then right after that scene, another scene quickly follows with Jesus healing a man with a withered hand. In this case, the Pharisees aren't simply objecting. They're actually filled with rage at Jesus' actions because he healed. 
And Jesus responds, the good news of the gospel, that he is the one who is the doer of good. He alone is the doer of good. He is the one who actually saves life. And the tax collectors hang on his words. In Luke chapter 7, 29 through 30, it's noted there that the tax collectors have received John's baptism. Right? So John's intent is to give law and gospel. To let God's commandments lay bare the heart so there's a great sense of neediness and then run to Christ. So when Christ comes on the scene, the tax collectors have received that repentance by God's gift and they're looking for the Christ. They've received John's baptism of repentance toward God. They've realized their utter neediness. Unfortunately, in response, Luke tells us, but not so for the Pharisees. They've actually rejected John's baptism and not received the force of the law, which is repentance. And so no law no gospel. So they're rejecting Christ. So they've rejected God's purposes for them, which is a sad state of affairs in Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 11, all hope is not lost for the Pharisees. Uh, one invites Jesus over, but notices <clears throat> in Luke chapter eleven forty-three to 44, that Jesus has not, here's the issue, ceremonially washed before the meal. And Jesus who of course knows the heart and is going to press the issue of the law, says, now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of your platter, but inside of you, you're full of robbery and wickedness. Of course, that doesn't go over well. Jesus exposing their hearts. In chapter 12, verse one, he tells the disciples candidly, beware of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And that may well have shocked the disciples who, realized, who thought that they were the safeguards of Jewish religion and piety. In chapter 14, we have another invitation to a meal by a Pharisee. But this time, a man is suffering from dropsy. And the Pharisees are wondering if Jesus is actually going to heal this person because, after all, it's the Sabbath. And Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He rightly uses the Sabbath. He's the only one who perfectly does performs the fourth commandment and imputes that righteousness to us who don't. And so he says the Sabbath, Jesus our perfect prophet says, the Sabbath should never be used as an excuse to not do good towards your neighbor. Never use the Sabbath as an opportunity to say, I'm exempt from loving God and loving neighbor. So Jesus constantly applying the law to the Pharisees, seeking to expose their hearts, expose the sin in their life, to drive them to repentance, and therefore they can run to the feet of Christ. Chapter 15, those two groups come together again, the tax collector and the Pharisee. They were together in chapter 5. Now in chapter 15, they coalesce again. And it tells us in Luke chapter 15, 1 through 2, the tax collectors are hanging on every word of Jesus because he's received them in the kingdom of God. They've received the law, now they've received the gospel, which is Christ. They're hanging on his every word. You can picture almost the smiles on their face. We're in the kingdom of God. Those once outcast, set aside, now, through the good news of Christ, we are in the kingdom. Uh, However, here again is the word, the Pharisees aren't happy and they're grumbling. They're grumbling that this man, Jesus, is actually receiving sinners and eating with them because their program is ostracization and an alienation of the wicked. And of course, they don't believe that they are. So Jesus launches into that threefold parable that we love, the parables of lostness, the parable of the shepherd who seeks after the one lost sheep, 
The parable of the woman who seeks after the one lost coin and the parable of the father who comes after the lost son. Jesus represents the pinnacle of God's redemptive plan to seek and to save the lost. And when they come in, there is a huge party thrown. This represents God's program for his people to delight in receiving sinners, those who recognize their utter neediness and run to Christ in the gospel. Luke chapter 16 is going to continue with this portrait of the Pharisees where Jesus is going to talk on money, and that's a particularly favorite theme of Luke. Luke will address a couple of issues, presumably for Theophilus, whom he's writing for. He's the patron likely providing the publication cost for Luke and Acts. It's an expensive venture. And what we can gather from the data is that Luke is continually encouraging Theophilus to say, true commitment to Christ, a life of gratitude, if repentance has been sown in your heart in the gospel, it will be reflected in one thing in particular Luke presses on, which is the issue of possessions. So for Luke, a note of gratitude is, let me see your wallet. <laughs> How do you provide for those who are needy? Right? If you know the Old Testament, you know the prophets, you know this is a continually perennial concern for them to provide for the needy, to have an open-handed sense of generosity. So Jesus has been proclaiming this throughout Luke's gospel in many places. We don't have time to canvas those. But after he proclaims a parable about money, Look at the Pharisees' response. Luke says this, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things, and they are scoffing at him. So they're grumbling, and they're scoffing. And essentially what they've done is they've rejected God's plan. They've defined purity in essential matters that relate to simply externals. And not so for Christ. It's an internal matter of receiving the gospel and it overflowing in the way you respond to other people in that gratitude. So they say this man receives sinners. They say this man is wrong on his views of money. And then Jesus launches into a fascinating parable, which is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And you're probably familiar with this story. And the punchline at the end essentially is saying... Jesus' teachings on how you properly handle possessions is entirely consistent with the Old Testament law of Moses and the prophets. If anybody's out of bounds, it's not Jesus, it's guess who? It's the Pharisees. So Jesus' teachings continually represent and reflect God's desires for his people to hear the law, to respond in faith to Christ in the gospel, and then live a life of gratitude with the right use of possessions. Now in chapter 17, believe it or not, the Pharisees are going to ask the critical question, which is when is the kingdom of God coming? They don't believe it's yet come. Of course, we know Luke's gospel that the kingdom of God has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ, ultimately pinnacled on the cross and the resurrection. And Jesus says, if you wanna know when the kingdom of God is, don't think it's too far off. It's actually here in your presence, it's in your midst as I give you the law and as I give you the gospel. You wanna enter in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is here with Jesus Christ himself. All right, so that's our quick literary context for these different characters. We have the pious Pharisee, who who believes that he represents God's ways in all matters of ritual purity. And when you have the tax collector who's been laid bare with his great neediness and sin by the use of the law and driven to Christ in the gospel. So the, the Pharisee is persistently looking inward, clinging tenaciously to their works, believing that they represent God and his ways. The tax collector is not doing that. 
So this makes sense now of our parable as the responses of both individuals. One truly understands how to respond to God properly, the right heart posture, and one is still inward looking, hypocritical, filled with pride, self-trusting. Now, that represents an issue in the parable because if you are inward looking and if you measure your life and status before God on the basis of how you compare to other people, which is what they're doing, you're in for all sorts of trouble. Now, let's look very quickly at the context around this parable. So we looked at the general context of Luke, and it is helpful to note that Luke is really pressing on an important theme here in Luke chapter 18. He'll do it consistently, but he'll do it in different ways. So in Luke chapter 18, 1 through 8, Jesus gives a parable on prayer. You have this widow and this impious judge. And essentially, we're learning that God is not like an impious judge who simply responds to people because they're driving him crazy. He is not like the impious judge. But Jesus is calling us to respond in faith to believe God will provide. He is our Father. He's greater than. So this is the first part of Luke's parable on prayer. Jesus is addressing this at the beginning here of Luke chapter 18, as he's already addressed it in the Lord's Prayer in Luke chapter 11. Now we have this next parable, we'll look at this shortly, but I want to then let your eyes look at the text that follows this, which is Luke chapter 18, 15 through 17. So we have two parables in Luke 18, parable on, is God of such a kind, does he respond? And then a prayer, uh, a posture on prayer of, this is what you should do when you come to God in prayer. And that springs board over into Luke chapter 18, 15 through 17. This is where Jesus takes the little children in their arms and says, the kingdom of God belongs to the children. Now, we have to understand the first century context is not our context. We think children are innocent, wonderful examples, should be listened to, should be heard. Not so in the first century. They are the marginalized. They are the unworthy. They are looked at as needy. They have no resume. They have no clout. They have no credentials. They have nothing in their hands to bring to someone to endear them to that person. So when Jesus says the, children, the kingdom of God belongs to the children, it's telling us something important about our heart posture. Therefore, in the kingdom of God, it's because we have no claim and no clout except the merit and the righteousness of Christ. The, the tax collectors have seen this. And then in Luke chapter 18, 18 through 30, we have this rich young ruler. So you see different responses. The young child represents how to get into the kingdom of God. And then you have the rich young ruler. He's asking the same question, which is how do I get into the kingdom of God? He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Jesus quickly will tell him, there's only one that's good. That's God. Giving him, and then he gives him the law in hopes that he runs to the gospel. Sadly, the rich young ruler turns away empty-handed. So this chapter is addressing the posture of those who come to Christ, the posture that God accepts. Who finds reception by God? What is their posture? And who finds rejection and being cast aside because of their heart posture? Now that leads us now into this parable, Luke chapter 18, 9 through 14. Real quick, I want to just make a comment about parables. In the first century, there's an individual named Elias Theon. He has probably the best definition of parables that I've ever come across. He says, a parable is a fictitious, a fictitious story giving an image of truth. So it's a, it's not a, non, it's a non-reality world. It's a picture world, right? So it's what we call fiction. But that picture world, the amazing thing is that it represents the real world. 
And so as we enter into the fictitious world, we realize things about God and about ourselves that a story lets us do. We we get to make judgments in that story because we feel like I can let my hair down. (laughs) It's not the real world. However, Jesus will catch you in the parable and say, no, actually, this more reflects the real world than you think as you come out the other side. So we're in for lots of surprises when it comes to Jesus' parables. They're meant to have a sort of shock value to recalibrate our thinking about not only ourselves, but about God. So here we go through this parable. I'll read it and I'll make a few comments and then we'll talk about some applications for ourselves. Uh, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So that's a twofold issue that has to be addressed. The Pharisee. Trusting in themselves, they have the merit, they have the righteousness, they have clout, they have credentials when they come to Christ. And the way you can do that is by comparative analysis of other people. You can always find somebody that you're better than, right? Looking within yourself and saying, I'm not like that person. We can all do it. But is that the type of a posture that God responds to, comparative analysis? Oh, okay, because you're not like Frank or Susie, I guess I'll listen to you in prayer because you've done this or that that makes you worthy, gives you the credentials by which I say, okay, I have the time of day, I'll respond to you in prayer. So this is a significant issue I think we also struggle with ourselves. And this is where we're caught in the parable that we tend to do this with God as well. If we're honest, we often think, if God's gonna hear me in prayer, it's because I've done X, Y, or Z. Because I've contributed this. Because today I didn't do that. Inward, comparative, right? And that's the death nail on prayer. So here we have in verse 10, two men went to the temple to pray. Of course, the the temple represents the, the presence of God in a particularly special way, the Jewish temple. Privileged, prized location in Jerusalem. And they're going to pray. One's a Pharisee, the other's a tax collector. We've mentioned those two culturally in the literary context. And here now we see the culmination of all the Pharisees done in Luke's gospel. He's been doing a lot. A lot of complaining, a lot of scoffing, a lot of using money, a lot of washing pots and pans and pitchers. But now we get to see how the Pharisee responds to God in prayer. So this is really remarkable that we see what he's done now represents how he approaches God. The Pharisee stands by himself, alienated, ostracized by himself because no one else reflects his purity and piety. And he prays this way, God, I thank you that I am not, and you notice that we're gonna get into a lot of eyes, inward focused, the law has not reached its effect in his life. I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, he's going through the commandments. He's good comparatively, comparative to others, especially like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. Can you imagine, right? The Pharisees, we believe, fasted Monday, Thursday, twice a week. That's, that's pretty significant in their devotion. And they give tithes of all that they get. But Jesus has already said, but your heart is full of hypocrisy. It's not out of love for God and neighbor, and you've never repented. So all of this, in a sense, is show, showmanship, and comparative analysis to earn favor with God to get him to hear. So the Pharisee will continue to stand by himself and pray by himself. The problem is his prayer will not be responded to or heard. Which is remarkable for a first century religious leader. 
Uh, verse 13, but the tax collector standing afar off won't even, and look how Luke describes this, will not even lift up his eyes to heaven. Right? The physiological posture of someone who knows their great neediness, he refuses to even look up in a sense of his undeserving uh, status before God. And he's beating his breast, a sign of true contrition and repentance. It's a beautiful posture. The law has re- affected his life in repentance. And this is his prayer. Couldn't be more opposite than the prayer of the Pharisee. The focus is on God. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He has a frank recognition of God's nature, which is a God of mercy. A God of mercy because he needs mercy. And he has a frank recognition of himself. No comparative analysis. Simply, this is who I am, a sinner. In Luke chapter 5, Peter said the same thing. Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinner. This is the prayer that the Lord receives and responds to. Now, Jesus gives what's called an epimithian which is an interpretation of the parable. And this is nice. So sometimes when we read parables, we say, I have no idea what you're saying. <laughs> and so Jesus will respond. And he gives the interpretation. He says in verse 14, I tell you, this man went to his house justified, this is the tax collector, rather than the other. And justified can take on a number of nuances, but here it means to be vindicated, to be shown in the right, or to be living the right. In other words, let repentance and faith produce fruit in his life, which is what John the Baptist has been proclaiming in John chapter 3. Luke chapter 7, 34 to 35, talks about this issue of justification. Been shown to be in the right because this is God's right way of responding uh, to sinners. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So what do we learn about God? God isn't impressed with your religious acts of external matters, with your sense of superiority, with your sense of comparative analysis. He's not impressed in the slightest. If you think that is God, you've just broken the second commandment and made him who you think you are and we are. So God doesn't work on comparative analysis. His calculations are not our calculations. We expect a transactional relationship with God. If I have this deed and that deed and this act and this act, you will then respond to me. But God is not of such a kind that he responds to us on the basis of our feelings of superiority and self-measurements. And I have it. And I'm producing it and providing it to you. Rather, what we learn here is God is a God who delights to be a God of mercy. Not a transactional God, but a merciful God who loves to respond to people who recognize their utter neediness. Now, we've been dealing a lot with the law. Let the law have its effect. Let it reveal who we are as a sinner as we come before God. We should come before God as the tax collector. I'm a sinner. But where's the gospel? The gospel is he is a God of mercy who responds to our acknowledgement of our great need. How many of us come before God and say, I have nothing to claim before you except the merit and the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Isn't that freeing to come before God knowing you have a lot of stain on your hands as do I? We've not loved God and neighbor, but this is the type of God that he is, one who is saturating us with his mercy who loves when we acknowledge our great neediness and run to Christ who alone is our true righteousness. So dear saints today, there is nothing to muster in your prayer. Christ has done it for you. 
He's provided the access before the Father. But what God does want from his people is the heart posture of, I come before you sinful and needy with no claim and no clout. That's the type of prayer that God accepts. Aren't you glad that's the type of prayer God accepts? If I had to be transactional with God, I don't think I would ever pray because of what the law reveals in my heart. So the good news of the gospel is he's a merciful God and he's merciful, the gospel is because of Jesus. The only one who does anything in the gospel of Luke that is good and fitting is, guess who? Jesus. And one way we can tell how we're hearing the gospels is who we've, how we frame things. We've heard of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Guess who is the only person in Luke who has perfectly loved their neighbor? It's Jesus. Guess who's the one who imputes his righteousness to you when you come before God in prayer, recognizing your utter neediness? It is Jesus. So back to the questions we began with. What does it mean to pray in the Lord's Prayer? Forgive me my sins. It means that's the posture of our hearts when we come before God. Open-handed confession, this is who I am. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, for the sake of Christ and his merit. And what does it mean, don't lead us into temptation? It means I am so prone to fall at any moment. Please help me by your mercy to not fall into despair, but raise me up through your spirit into victory. Number two, what type of posture in prayer is God pleased with? What prayer is he favorably disposed toward? The prayer of a sinner who comes before him with frank recognition, who refuses to compare themselves to others and said, before you, I am the sinner, Christ is the savior. Have mercy and receive my prayer. Three, what character in Luke do we most often reflect? I'll let you to consider that. But in your posture toward God in prayer, are you the Pharisee? Comparative analysis, transactional, this is why you're hearing me today. Or do you respond as the tax collector, realizing utter neediness and saying, receive me for the sake of Christ. That is the prayer that God delights in. That is the prayer that he hears. Finally, question uh, in Heidelberg 115 says, why does God want the 10 commandments to be preached so strictly? And I hope as you're working through the sermon series and the force of the law is felt, the weight of the law right? We've broken every commandment. Shouldn't that naturally lead us to a prayer that says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. For the sake of Christ, you are the gospel, and you hear my prayer for his sake. And then it leads to a life of gratitude and prayer of gratitude. As God loves us and works on behalf of his beloved son to make us more and more increasingly like him. Dear saints, this is the God we serve, aren't you glad? A God of mercy who hears one prayer, the prayer of God be merciful to me, a sinner, because of Christ, his sake, he'll do this.